Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is December 15th, 2009, and my guest is James Hamilton of the University of California at San Diego. He blogs at Econ Browser. James, welcome to Econ Talk. Glad to be with you, Russ. Our, stati- our starting topic for today is the federal government's budget deficit and uh, what that deficit might mean, if anything, for the future. In a recent post at Econ Browser, you reacted to Paul Krugman's claim the deficit wasn't really worrisome, but you seem to be a little worried about it. What are your concerns? Well, first, I'd like to clarify that I'm in complete agreement with Paul that we don't need to balance the budget right away. A large deficit in 2009 and 2010 is uh, quite desirable and necessary. And I think if we tried to to balance the budget right now, it would be counterproductive to the point of being infeasible. Uh, So we're I have my concerns is with what's going to happen uh, a couple years down the road. What What's the longer-term trajectory? And uh, Paul's position is that we can grow our way out of whatever we dig ourselves into, just as at the end of World War II, we had a debt-to-GDP ratio in the U.S. that got above 100%. We worked our way down from that with economic growth. And Paul also points out there are a number of other countries in the world that have those kind have those kind of uh, debt levels and have worked out of them through uh, economic growth. I think it's important to just for listeners who aren't used to thinking about debt. When you talk about the debt to GDP ratio, uh, debt is a stock, I think, and GDP is a flow. That is, one is at a point in time, and one is describing something that occurs over time. So if you think about if you make $50,000 a year in income, that's an amount per year, and you owe $50,000, which is a stock, a one, uh, uh, just a number without a time component, that would be 100%, right? That, that's what it means. Because I think some people might think, well, 100%, well, then you're bankrupt, but it, you're going to repay it over time. And if you grow, your ability to finance that, uh, the, both the capital and the principal, the principal and the interest, is feasible. Well, that's right. They're in different units. But, of course, the key question about the debt is the service cost, which is a flow, an annual flow. What do you owe in interest on that per year? And uh, with a given interest rate, you're basically uh, talking about the same the same comparison. So you take the, uh, the $50,000 debt and, uh, say, with 5% interest, that's 2500 per year. Uh, so... That's manageable. That's still something you'd want to compare with your fifty thousand uh, dollar income. So, so the ratio of debt to GDP, although you're right there in different units, is a very natural uh, kind of way to to think about the overall burden. And certainly, referring to the historical norms, I think is is quite relevant in terms of uh, if it gets uh, far out of line with the kind of thing we've seen before in peacetime, uh, you you wonder what is going to stabilize this. So are we out of line in peacetime? Well, yeah, there there isn't anything uh apart from World War II that's that's like what we're getting into uh right now. So uh this this is a pretty unusual development. We're talking about deficits uh uh this year and next uh on the order of 10% of GDP. So so that's a pretty big deal. If we have time at the end, I want to come back to the question of whether the current level of deficit is desirable or, or infeasible to do something about whether it's infeasible to do something about it. But I want to stick for now with, with just the mechanics. So I think uh, this past week, the S- Senate voted to lift the debt ceiling from $12.1 trillion to something closer to fourteen. Is that correct? I don't know the exact numbers. Something but like that. I, I'd, I'd emphasize that there is a, a political game that goes on that's very separate from the economics. Politically, we have separate votes in the United States on the spending and tax questions, right. which determine the deficit, and on the total allowable ceiling for the debt. 
And uh, from an economic perspective, it's very strange to separate those two questions <laughs> because is, yeah. there's no way you can run a bigger deficit without increasing the debt. Uh, and uh, it, it ends up being something where the politicians can say, well, I voted against the debt increase. I'm trying to do something about this. But yet when it comes to taxes or spending, they were the ones who voted to create the basic need to do the extra borrowing. Yep. So it's an excellent point. I'm, I'm a little... Uh, <laughs> Uh, concerned about the grandstanding some politicians uh, like to carry on when we get to the point of voting on the debt ceiling. Uh, to me, the real question is taxes and spending. But I brought it up because I think, first of all, $14 trillion is a really big number, and, and that alarms people. Um, uh, and that is close to our GDP, probably a little bit above it right now, if I have the number right. It's in the 13s. And I, I think if you apply the discussion we had earlier, uh, it's a little harder to do because there isn't a single interest rate. So a lot of the debt that has been issued in the past, it's all been issued at, at different interest rates. And then there's a current rate that the Treasury has to offer to attract additional funds. And that right now is very low, correct? Uh, that's right. It's practically free if, if you're looking at the very short-term debt. It's close to zero. So – Right now, we expect to borrow something on the order of $1.5 trillion to finance the shortfall next year, in the coming year, to finance the shortfall of revenues relative to expenditures. But in addition, we have debt coming due because of the way the past debt was financed, correct? So we have borrowing we're going to have to do to pay off old debt, and we've got interest rate mostly on old debt interest rate, the service cost, as you mentioned, right? Right. So to a first approximation, the change in the debt is equal to the deficit because you basically have to roll over that outstanding debt. You haven't done anything to pay it down. Plus, you've added new debt in the form of this year's deficit. Now, there's another complication we could get into as to who is holding the debt. Uh, a lot of that $1.5 trillion number you're talking about is, is not actually owed to the public. It's owed by one branch of the government to another branch of the government. And so often uh, we net those out to talk about the net debt to the public, which is a little bit more modest number than the one you're bringing up here. That's an excellent point. How how modest a number is that roughly? Do you have an idea? Well, uh, we're talking about something that uh, at the end of next year would be 60% of GDP instead of the 100%. So it's, it's really a sizable sum. The, uh, the Federal Reserve uh, owns a, uh, a significant chunk of the federal debt at the moment, and the Social Security Trust Fund is, is by far the biggest single holder. So that's basically money that the government promises to pay to another entity of the government. So does this include uh, – this This may clear up a puzzle I have trouble thinking about clearly. Uh, the Fed is currently buying uh, mortgages that are being held by Fannie and Freddie. I think they've got about a trillion dollars on their books. And somebody told me, well, that's nothing to worry about because they're guaranteed. Well, yeah, they're guaranteed by the government. So – what is exactly going on there? And how, do you have any idea how that enters into the accounting or accounting at all, if at all? Um, okay, well, the mortgage-backed securities the Fed is buying are uh, not so much owned outright by Fannie and Freddie as guaranteed by Fannie and Freddie. That's right. And so, yes, the uh, the government is on the line for those, um, and uh, because of the conservatorship. That Fannie and Freddie are operating under they, their obligations have been assumed by the government explicitly. It was only implicit before, right? Right. But now it's explicit. That's that's right. So there is, uh, uh, you know, potential liabilities uh, on all kinds of fronts. Uh, you can talk about the potential liabilities from Fannie and Freddie, and and while we're at it, let's throw in Ginnie Mae and the FHA and the FDIC. These are huge numbers. The, the future health care costs are, uh, you know, a real monster when you when you project the trends for those. And uh, the Social Security about Trust Medicare. Fund, I, about... I mentioned it's, it's money that the government owes to itself, but the right. accounting notion was that, that that was a payment the government was going to have to make in the future to, uh, uh, to the future retirees. So, uh, you know, you start looking at, at these kind of questions, they, they aren't part of that direct 
debt calculation. They're not part of the the accounting identity we talked about relating the deficit to the debt, but they are part of what constitutes the uh, the potential solvency of the federal government. And uh, that's where I was raising the issue about where's this all headed in the future, and, but, and I think there would be reasons to be concerned about that. But it's not, uh, as you, I think, very uh, wisely point out, it does not necessarily generate a requirement to issue treasuries to borrow that money in the coming year. No, it it, it has no such requirement, and of course <laughs> that's that's what the real seductive aspect of these loan yeah. guarantees yeah, was. Uh, yeah. It's totally off budget. Uh, you know, it looks like you get something for nothing, and that's what Fannie and Freddie were doing, collecting fees, relatively small fees over the years for promising that that they would make good on, on all these loans they were securitizing. And Fannie and Freddie had nowhere near the capital to do it. Uh, implicitly, it was the, the government, and now explicitly, but but the government still likes that game. Yeah, and uh, uh, not just Fannie and Freddie, as I said, but also the FHA and Ginnie Mae. And, uh, you know, we're still in that same business of, of making promises that are off balance sheet, but may come back to bite us uh, on, on the real uh, cash flow side in the future. Well, I'm a little still confused. It's a very complex topic. Um, we have, according to the legislation, there are certain promises to retirees on the books right now, as is uh, uh, as there is also medical care uh, promises in the form of Medicare, uh, barring changes in the current law. But under the current law, we have a lot of promises to a bunch of people who are getting older and sicker as time passes. And I assume some of those promises will just not be kept. And I think most people assume that. Of course, that may turn out to be false. But if the U.S. breaks those promises, changes the letter of the law of Social Security, say, and, and puts, for example, a, a later retirement age or a um, an income means test, there are many ways at which it could deal with the fact that it might not have as much money as it, as it would hope to have down the road uh, to pay those promises. That seems to be different than uh, paying back – the bondholders of last year or the treasury securities holders of last year or the people who say um, those FHA mortgages, is, aren't those a little bit different? I think they're totally different. Okay. Uh, I, I don't sure. think the U.S. has a legal obligation to be having exactly the same retirement age and exactly the same health benefits that get covered 20 years from now as, as they're doing today. And indeed, I think it's not really going to be feasible uh, you know, as I say, you project these trends and there's nothing but, but trouble ahead. On the other hand, if the federal government were to default on its obligations to uh, bondholders, that has very dramatic repercussions uh, uh, in terms of our ability to borrow next time. And, and we, we still need to do a lot of borrowing and uh, the whole world financial system. So so they're, they're totally different issues in my mind, even though you might say there's some sense in which the government is reneging on something in both instances. No, I agree with you. That's why I brought it up, because I think they're totally different. And so when people talk about the looming demographic train wreck, to me, it's of a different nature than the risks that were under between, say, 2010 and 2013, as we spend, say, one and a half or one something trillion more than we take in each year. That's right. That's why I was pointing to that as, as a, a longer-run issue rather than Good. what's happening just right this year. Okay, so let's turn to the current uh, – let's talk about what we might call the short and medium term. Short being two, three months from now, one month from now, medium being the 2010 to 2013 period, um, the longer but not too long, not dealing with these demographic uh, issues that are that are – uh, going to cause adjustments of some kind or another. So here's my worry, and tell me if you think this is um, not a worry. Uh, I just read uh, – there was an article in the Washington Post this a uh, week or so ago, <clears throat> and it was detailing the the nuts and bolts of a $31 billion uh, sale of treasuries to raise $31 million more dollars to cover the government's expenditures. I was trying to find the article, by the way, and I Googled $31 billion uh, debt or $31 billion deficit, Washington Post, something like that. And I happened to also pull up, Freddie Mac will ask for $31 billion from taxpayers, and GM lost nearly $31 billion in 2008. <laughs> Two other government uh, problems that are being dealt with. So we, we've got 
a lot of uncertainty. What, what struck me as frightening uh, potentially about that article was the $31 billion was a four-week loan, a four-week uh, treasury. So it basically said, give us $31 billion for four weeks, and when, in four weeks we'll give it back. I think the interest rate on it was very, very – maybe zero, literally zero. It was basically we'll park your money, and if there's deflation, you'll be covered. Um, of course, if there's inflation in four weeks, you'll, you'll lose a little bit. But it basically said we're going to borrow this under a very, very short-term uh, period because it's cheap to borrow short-term. People aren't really too worried about default four weeks from now. That I mean most people aren't worried about any kind of default. But certainly, the U.S. is not going to default within four weeks. So you, you don't have to offer a very high interest rate. And when I read that, I thought, gee, that's what the investment banks did that went broke. They borrowed under very short-term rates, because, under very short terms, because they could get a very low rate of – they only had to pay a very low rate of interest. And when people start worrying about that, uh, they could, people could suddenly stop. And uh, you can't finance the next $31 billion. Are you worried about that at all? That short-term aspect of it? Well, it's not thirty not years. Over the two-month <laughs> horizon, because I think that two-month rate is is sending a signal that that you summarize that we're not going to have that problem by January 2010. And uh, you know, you can look at the yield curve; it does slope up, but fairly gradually. And the government can borrow very cheaply for. Uh, you know, several years, and, and even the long-term rates surprise me with with how low they are. And uh, that again is one of the arguments that Paul Krugman makes: that look, uh, those those rates at which the government can borrow at, at various horizons are still very low. It doesn't look like like markets are, are worried about that. And I think that's an accurate summary. Markets are not worried at the moment. Today, yeah. uh, the question is. Could things change that would would cause uh, people to be more concerned at some point in the future? And I agree with you, things could. And uh, what's the nature of that scenario? Well, the thing that's going to help all of this uh, uh, this mathematics is economic growth. And so if we continue to see growth of the U.S. economy like we did in the third quarter, that's going to help a lot for all of these things not just bringing in more tax revenue, but reducing the risk of the government having to pay pay out more on the, on these uh, implicit guarantees and and uh, uh, you know greater stability to the financial system. And so, if things play out that way, I think that uh, you'd see interest rates rise as as they do normally in an expansion. But it would all be be kind of healthy and manageable. Where where things would uh, would create a problem is if if something comes up that really causes people to question uh, the ability of the system to to keep going. And there are things that could happen along those lines if we had another recurrence of. Uh, uh, serious financial problems. We we still have the the other shoe in the form of commercial real estate, for example. Uh, if if the uh, economy were to sputter from here, or if the politics were to play out in a way that that people become much more concerned about just how these longer run issues of of uh, medical costs and so on are going to be resolved, then I I could agree with you. There there could be a day coming when. Uh, uh, those short-term rates would change very quickly, and the expectations would would take a different course. Um, I guess uh, you know I don't think it's going to happen in two months, but I I could imagine it happening in two years or or uh, uh, you know some kind of kind of medium-term horizon. And I think the key policy for addressing that is for the U.S. to to take a more responsible stand on these longer-run issues. You know, let's let's demonstrate that we really do have a, a path that's going to make sense going into the future and that people can believe. And I think that's what's necessary to, uh, uh, to prevent the kind of uh, run crisis you're talking about kind of uh, run. rolling over near-term yeah. debt. Yeah, I just want to clarify that 2010 is about two weeks from now. Uh, it sounds very far away, 2010. So I actually say 2010. That sounds like next year to me. But <laughs> when you say 2010, that's like 
that's like Buck Rogers. That's like so far away, but uh, it's not. It's two and a little over two weeks away from when we're taping this. And, and well, yeah, okay, but so, I knew what so you meant. I'm just making a joke. A, a, you know, the two months. Well, let me uh, let me paint a, or, or, let me paint know, a negative it, let me paint a negative scenario for the two month thing uh, that I am worried a little worried about. Maybe I'm being uh, paranoid, and I have to confess, I was a uh, a deficit dove in the past. Uh, I was I would always say that. Uh, Milton Friedman's insight, which I think is still basically true, and most of the time true, which is it, it's not so much how you finance government spending, whether it's taxes today or taxes tomorrow. What's important is what you spend it on. It's true that if you finance it with taxes tomorrow, which is what debt is, you're going to pay a little higher price for it. So you want to make sure that what you're spending on is particularly good because you're going to. It's a little more. There's an interest cost, but in general, there wasn't any imminent or even vague risk of default. It was just perhaps a little of a luxury to run a deficit in the 80s and 90s. What I'm worried about, and maybe again I'm just uh, I'm just being paranoid here, is we're supposed to borrow about, I'm told, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe it's wrong, about $3 trillion in the coming year. Uh, it is possible that a combination of the, that magnitude – and other signs of economic challenge, like you mentioned, and so one, the one that's on my mind, besides commercial real estate, is another wave of foreclosures and and mortgage defaults. Mm-hmm. I know that uh, Fannie and Freddie uh, purchased about six hundred thousand mortgages in two thousand and seven, with less than five percent down. Those mortgages are probably not doing very well. Something between twenty five and thirty three percent of U.S. mortgages today are underwater. Some of those are going to reset in 2010. Uh, the interest rates, they were adjustable rate mortgages, and I assume that's not going to look so good, um, barring some surprising appreciation I don't anticipate. So that combination, uh, given plus the magnitude of the amount of borrowing we might have to do, uh, could be difficult to actually pull off. It's conceivable that the Chinese or others might say, you know, this doesn't look as safe as it used to, and it would, I assume, start with a rising interest rate. That would be the the signal. So my my first question is: Is there a doomsday scenario like that that you can imagine in the short run, in, in within a month or two? And also, is what would be the warning signs that that might be imminent? Well, let's let's start with some numbers. So the uh, the current baseline projection from the CBO. Is for a total deficit for 2010 of under uh, 1.4 trillion, and then for 2011 it's under 1 trillion. So those are the kind of kind of numbers we're we're looking at. And what growth rate are they assuming for the economy as a whole? Are they assuming an on a continuing GDP recovery? Um, Assume they are. Yeah, I, I don't have their number here for that. Uh, okay. You know, that was the point I was making that that economic growth yeah. helps helps everything in terms of revenues and and is is one uh, partial salve for the doomsday scenario you were you were painting there. I, I think unemployment is one of the key key factors in defaults and all the rest. Uh, so, yeah, that that is definitely a possibility, and. Uh, you know, markets don't seem to be expecting it at the moment, given the very low rates. But uh, uh, you know, if something were to happen to really change expectations, uh, it it might become a concern. Um, and uh, you know, I I don't I don't think we can rule it out a hundred percent. I think it's not the most likely scenario from here. You know, I'm a but, uh, but I think it's sufficiently likely. That my position is, uh, we ought to be implementing longer-term structural moves that that make the U.S. borrowing at the moment credible. I, I think those low rates are, you know, practically zero rates at the moment, are a reflection of the historical fact that the U.S. has been relatively responsible with our debt management. And uh, when you are responsible with your debt management, you can borrow at times like this very favorably. And uh, uh, I, I think as long as, as there was some long-term assurance, uh, that helps mitigate the risk of the short-term crisis. This, but, is, this is the tallest pygmy theory, right? So that the U.S. is struggling, but compared to other nations, we're still a relatively safe place to park money, and so we we are the the uh, parking lot of choice. 
Well, one of the very interesting things in the fall of 2008 was this flight into dollars. Uh, and uh, it was kind of surprising because the U.S. was ground zero for the, the world's financial problems, and yet uh, people wanted to park their money in, in, in dollars. And, and uh, even now, despite these concerns about uh, U.S. fiscal solvency, as, as we're saying, those, those short-term borrowing rates are, are practically zero. So I think there is a link between the short run and, and the long run, and that link has to do with credibility. And we shouldn't take it for granted that we're always going to have that credibility as a nation, that we're always going to be able to do this. It, it's the kind of power that it's possible to abuse to the point that you lose it, and that would be a very frightening thing. So I think I'm agreeing with you. Uh, this is something to pay attention to. Uh, I see it as, as something for... Um, uh, really focusing on on what we're doing as we we pull out of the current situation. Now we could get into you know the other details of where the specifics of where the uh, recovery money got spent sensible, and I think we both share some some criticisms of those. Uh, and uh, uh, you know that's that's totally valid, and that's something too that you could argue undermines the. Uh, the ability of the U.S. to weather a crisis like the kind you're describing if it were to come uh, out that way. Although I think to the credit of the administration, they have not proposed a second stimulus package of the same kind. So uh, for whatever reason, uh, and I, I think, of course, politics plays a key role, but they have not said, well, we just need more of the same. They're, they've talked about different kinds of, of spending, particular tax cuts to businesses as a way to improve the employment picture. So if I think we'd be in a different situation if if people resp- if the administration responded to the current double digits of unemployment and said well we need another nine, you know 787 billion I think that might have been an interesting it would have been an interesting experiment but we're not going to see it. Um, let me talk about let me ask you about two things um, that are related to these issues. Uh, what is the possibility that the debt will simply be monetized, uh, that the Fed will print money? A lot of people say, well, we will ne- we'll never default because we'll just print money, and we can al- the Fed can always do that. So there really never is a real risk of default. What's your reaction to that? Well, it's true by definition that the, what the government owes is dollars, and the government could create as many dollars as it needs to fulfill those obligations. So with a default, we're, we're not really talking about failing to do that. Uh, the question is, can you do that without a very dramatic deterioration in uh, what a dollar can purchase? And in particular, the doomsday scenario we were discussing, in my mind, is, is very much uh, joined with a currency crisis, a sudden collapse in the value of the dollar. And that puts the Federal Reserve in a very tough situation. So they can they can defend the dollar uh, by by raising interest rates and, and letting the uh, uh, the Treasury default, or they can they can try to to step into the gap. I, I think people within the Federal Reserve would be sort of uh, horrified at the presumption that they're going to play the role of, of bailing out the government in this situation and monetizing the debt. Uh, but the way that I would see it playing out is, is frankly similar to what happened in the fall of 2008, where uh, there was this real crisis developing and uh, could have had very significant consequences. And the Fed just decided, well, uh, you know, somebody's got to solve this problem near term and we'll sort out uh, what this all means later, but but we'll just step in with creating reserves to whatever level we need, and, and in short order, they basically doubled the Fed's balance sheet. Uh, did that as thinking of it as kind of a short run response to the crisis, rather than a long run strategy of well, we're monetizing all of this, and I guess I think that's how it might play out in in the scenario you're talking about. I think I think the Fed would be very reluctant to to knowingly go down that road, 
but I could see them taking a, a series of emergency measures to get past this week's auction or, or, or that week's development, which has uh, uh, a similar kind of a effect. But it's it's a standard problem with these currency crises that it it's, uh, puts a country in a very unfortunate situation, and there isn't a good option. You're talking about uh, real threats to to the real side of economic activity, along with what's going on with inflation and the value of the currency, it's it's a very unfortunate thing to have happen to you, and and uh, that's why you want to make sure you're running your ship in a way that you don't get there in the first place. Yeah, I, I part part of my snort there. I, I just uh, it would be a very unfortunate thing. I think, and I want and I want to get to the. Uh, um, uh, it, the start wasn't at your at your analysis. It was that that we find ourselves in that situation, or that we're close to it, is rather remarkable. Um, I want to turn to the real impacts of a possible, uh, if if there were such a default or an inflationary semi default, whatever you want to call it. Before I do, I just want to make one more clarifying point about the worst case scenario and get your reaction. Um, in other sovereign defaults, where a nation no longer can honor its promises. My impression is that the signals come very late and very suddenly, that there isn't a long, looming warning that things are going bad. It's that things look great, and then all of a sudden, it's over. Is that a uh, an accurate summary of the experience of the last couple decades of sovereign defaults? Well, we're talking, I think, not just about sovereign defaults, but also about currency crises. Uh, and uh, as I was saying, I think I think the latter is is kind of the key model for the U.S. because you know we do have the fortunate position of being able to borrow in dollars, and and the capacity to to create those. Uh, so I, I don't think you you need to go all the way to default here, and and I don't think. Think we would, but uh, there have been a variety of, of experiences, uh, you know, in, in either category over time, and and I think it's a mistake to lump them all together and, and uh, you know say they all follow this pattern. Often it is the case that that you have a country that was was seeing real growth and uh, acquiring a lot of debt as a result, and uh, things looked very good before they. Uh, before they looked bad, um, I, th- I think this this uh, run up in in the public debt is is an element you'd find in in many of the other episodes. And if if you took the the name U.S. off of the current numbers and replaced them with some small developing country, you'd, you'd certainly say, yeah, this is the kind of situation that could uh, could go that uh, that route. So. Uh, on the other hand, I, I think you would see some movement in short-term interest rates uh, uh, in advance. Uh, you know, it, it's really remarkable how extremely low the short-term borrowing costs for the U.S. are, and, and I, I don't think you'd find an analogous situation in uh, the other experiences of a country that, that went from that kind of borrowing advantage to suddenly – uh, the sort of crisis we're talking about within a space of months. I'm fascinated by your observation, which I think is undoubtedly true, that that if a different country's um, name were on these securities, that we'd be in a different situation. Why is that? Is it just that it's, quote, unimaginable? Is it the past goodwill we've earned? Is it a trust or an expectation that it'll that that, that ship you're talking about will find its way to a safe harbor? What do, What do you think? Well, it's a combination of those, and and on top of all that, I would put the sheer size of the U.S. I mean, we're we're so important as a consumer and producer in world markets as well as financial sector uh, that this would, if it did happen, it would be in effect uh, not just on us but but on the whole world. We were talking about there was there was this initial flight to the dollar, and and. Uh, if if you don't trust the United States, who else don't you trust? Uh, you know, there's, there's going to be a sure. lot of other uh, victims of this if it were to to unfold the way you were you were describing. Uh, so I, there there 
a lot of these factors, the sheer size, the the tradition, and uh, as I was pointing out, the history of responsible management of uh, uh, the the debt, and uh, that's why I want to emphasize let let's make sure we're doing that last step correctly now. Let's talk about the Chinese for a minute. Uh, they've made some angry or worried noises about the possibility of um, inflation that would uh, reduce potentially dramatically the value of the money we of the resources we return to them for the promises they've made, the money they've given us. Um, what do you think they're thinking? Uh, I know there's no there. Uh, when I say they are thinking, there's no they. It's obviously a, a more complicated situation. But what is what strategy are the Chinese doing? What's what possible explanations are there for what the Chinese are doing and, and continue to do by putting relatively large sums of money into U.S. Uh, treasuries? Well, they're keeping the yuan from uh, appreciating, and they're thereby maintaining an export market. Now, most of our economic theories say that that wouldn't be a way to enrich uh, a country. Uh, it has worked fairly well for them so far. Uh Another thing that I see them having done, though, in addition to accumulating these these huge dollar holdings that leave them vulnerable to uh, the kinds of events we're talking about, they're also accumulating huge holdings of physical commodities, gold and copper and oil and, uh, you know, basically anything you can store, they've been storing. And uh, so although it's true that they're going to take a serious loss on their dollar holdings if if these events we were discussing were to take place, they're going to also take a a good gain on their their commodity holdings. So I'm not sure that they're as as totally exposed as uh, just looking at the financial numbers might lead you to expect. Uh, But as far as the the logic behind that whole export-based economy, um, goes, I'm not the one who can really explain it to you, what, what they're thinking. Um, uh, neither am I, so that, that's okay. <laughs> it's, it's a mystery to, I think, a lot of people. Um, I don't know whether they have a different theory or they are playing a different game than, than we think. Um, let's um, – let me close this section. Anything else keep you up at night? You talked about the uh, looming demographic issues with Social Security, Medicare – any other and commercial real estate lending that might come off crashing down? Are there any other economic uh, forces that you're alarmed about in the next, in the short run or medium run? Well, I guess one of the things we didn't mention in all of this is if you look at federal tax receipts as a, a percentage of GDP, that's historically in the U.S. always been below about twenty-one percent. Yeah, um, and very flat. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a remarkable long-term stability, and and if you if you look at these trends for medical expenditures in particular, they, it you know it's just growing much faster than than GDP. So so something's got to give here, and I'm not sure how it will give. We've been talking about about one way it could give is that. Uh, uh, the the world suddenly figures out it's not good to lend to the United States any anymore. Uh, another way it could give would be uh, uh, you know a, a big increase in the uh, the percentage of taxes that the uh, the federal government collects, and uh, uh, I would think that, that would potentially be something that would sacrifice our long run uh, growth potential. And uh, uh, moreover, just the the whole uh, experience of the last decade, where we haven't created jobs, we've we've invested in in housing rather than than productive capacity, and uh, uh, you know at the government level, not not investing in infrastructure, but but basically increasing transfer payments. Um, and I, I worry about the longer run uh, trajectory for the United States. Are, are we really uh, trying to make the world a better place in 20 years, or are we just passing all these problems on to the next generation? So, so that's that's a theme that shows up a lot of places uh, that that I find troubling. I guess. Well, it's always a, <clears throat> anytime I can now. I quote Lloyd Blankfein, the CEO of Goldman Sachs. 
who said, uh, as a paraphrase, he was that Goldman Sachs and other investment banks were doing God's work because they were channeling capital to its highest valued use. And um, so between 2004 and 2006, we channeled about $1.5 trillion into subprime mortgages, uh, people buying homes uh, they couldn't afford typically, second homes, uh, third homes, bigger homes. Um, I don't think that was its highest valued use. So unless we can, as you point out, I, I wish we'd, I think we'd be more productive if we channeled it elsewhere, but the incentives were such, as we've talked about many times on this program, that it went there. And that, um, if that doesn't change, it's not a good sign for long-run prosperity. Um, so I worry about that. Well, let's shift gears. And let's talk about an area that you have done a lot of very careful and interesting work on, which is oil prices. Um, there has been, in the past uh, decade, a, a long run-up in oil prices that I think is easy to miss. It, the prices at the pump bounce around a lot, but I was struck in your work uh, of that trend. I wasn't really aware of how long and sustained it was. And people have debated about why that is. Uh, why has the price of oil risen steadily for the time period it has. And I'd like you to talk about what you think the answer to that question is, and then I want to turn to what you think the impact of that is. Well, let's focus on the the last legs of it, say from 2005 to 2008, where you you saw a real acceleration of that trend, which, as you observe, really goes back to, to 97. The price has been coming up since then. Uh, between 2005 and 2008, world production of petroleum basically stagnated. We we weren't producing any more globally uh, two and a half years later uh, than we'd been in, in 2005. And yet in, in uh, 2006 and 2007, world GDP increased by more than 10% uh, in real terms. And uh, that's something that would produce a tremendous increase in demand for oil, along with with all kinds of other items. And and indeed it did. So China, for example, increased its consumption of oil by something like a million barrels a day over that period, uh, just those those two years. Now, how can China be consuming another million barrels a day when the world as a whole isn't producing any more oil? Well, the only way that can happen is for people in places like the U.S. and Europe and Japan to consume less oil than they were, despite the fact that our economies were growing. And well, we could have drawn down inventories, though, right? Well, why would you draw down inventories? This isn't a temporary development. Well, I don't know. I'm just trying to when – you, when you just talk about it as a – Yes, uh, let, well, let's talk yes, about the facts. As a matter of accounting, it could come out of inventory. So, and, but uh, the facts are: did we did we consume less oil over that period? The U.S. and yes, Japan. Okay, yes. so that's that's all that's relevant. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. So, so in fact, the consumption of of the OECD countries was down about a million barrels a day to to make up for what China was was adding. And that so was that's response. The way the numbers work out, but. Uh, it takes a, a, a very big increase in the price of, of oil for people to change uh, consumption. It's highly uh, price inelastic over the short run. Um, and I think maybe more so uh, in, in 2005 and 2006 than it had been historically, partly because the energy expenditures had become uh, modest enough for a lot of Americans that, that we could just afford to ignore those those initial price increases. Uh, so... I, I think that's not just the uh, the mechanical explanation what went on those years, but it's it's the broader uh, picture that's changing as as well. Which is uh, there's been a really remarkable thing that's happened globally, with with China being the most uh, uh, dramatic example. But but a lot of the newly industrialized countries has been a, a major sta- change in the standard of living within just a generation for for a whole lot of people in the world. And and those people now want cars and, and all the the rest of the stuff, which, which takes oil. And that's come at the same time that the world has been challenged in terms of the ability to increase production further. Now, we could we could talk about that that second side of the equation, and, and it's a complicated story, and I think you're going to have different details, different places. Sure. But uh, the bottom line is that it's not all that easy to keep on increasing oil production year after year, 
and in particular it's it's an incredible challenge to try to keep up with with the the uh, growing demand from the newly industrialized countries so i think this is uh, uh, something that that's also going to be the trend for the next decade. Now, short run, you you have other issues. Uh, you know, obviously the uh, uh, the world recession uh, took a pretty big bite out of uh, uh, world, world demand. petroleum demand, and and there have been some <clears throat> longer run adjustments to those price increases in the U.S. and elsewhere. But uh, uh, there's still a lot of people in China, and the vast majority of them don't have a car yet. <laughs> yeah. And if their incomes keep growing, more and more of them are going to want cars. And so I, I see this as a significant long-range challenge. Um, let me ask you about Saudi Arabia, which you refer to in your paper on this. That you've written more than one, but the one I saw, which we'll put a link up to on the web. Um, so you're thinking about this the way I usually think about it, which is a supply and demand picture. You've got a, a relatively uh, – a ver- relatively – vertical supply curve in the short run, you have an inelastic demand curve shifting out, and that's going to mainly be reflected in higher prices, and nations are going to respond differently depending on the flexibility of their economies. Individuals will respond differently depending on their flexibility. There will be short and long-run differences, of course, uh, more flexibility in the long run. But it's not quite a clean supply and demand picture because there is one supplier, there may be more than one, but certainly one who kind of does have a massive inventory because uh, their co- extraction costs are so low relative to the rest of the world, and that's Saudi Arabia. Is that still the right way to think about what complicates this picture, or is, there, is that not right? Well, for years, the Saudis were the world's swing producer in oil markets. They had a lot of excess capacity, and they would, they would change their production volumes on a monthly basis in response to market conditions. They would increase production when uh, prices were high and lower production when prices were low. And, uh, uh, you know, they claim to have huge reserves and they, they claim to have lots of excess capacity. So a lot of people were just assuming that the Saudis would always play that role in, in that way. So it, it, just a which couple smooths, years ago... Which smooths the price, right? So you would think that as prices running up over this decade, they would find it lucrative to respond with much bigger production, tempered by their desire not to lower their revenue elsewhere and the other you know, previous units, but that they would smooth that cycle a little bit. But they're not doing that now? Well, they did that up through about 2005, and uh, then their production stagnated and started to decline. So that was uh, – you know, in, in terms of, of the accounting, people who said who were looking at these trends and projecting out, okay, China's going to be consuming more and so on. Where is it going to come from? The assumption was it was going to come from Saudi Arabia, and the facts were that it didn't. Now, what explains those facts is is uh, a more complicated uh, uh, issue. Uh, do the do the Saudis have as much oil and as much capacity as they're claiming? Uh, that's an open question in in my mind. Uh, it may be that they they perceived it wasn't in their interest to uh, uh, to stabilize the price at a lower level, or it may be they found that they yeah. they couldn't really. Right. They didn't have that that capacity. But even if they do have that capacity, and you think they could go to fifteen million barrels a day, or the kinds of things people were assuming for them, which which they have never said actually that that that's what they're going to do. But but even if you, you you thought they could, it it doesn't take too many years of growth of China for that to get eaten up, and and then you're still back where where we were. So you throw in India too. Uh, that, that's that's right. Yeah. Um, Other billion people <laughs> and, wanting to uh, live Brazil better, and, and the oil yeah. producing countries themselves are, yeah. are uh, an important source of demand, and and so on. Now, now Brazil is going to be a, a net exporter, but. Uh, and, and that's another country where there have been some important new discoveries. So maybe they'll bring another million barrels a day online uh, within the next few years or, or whatever. But I, I think there's a new element in these calculations, which is the pace of the growth in demand from so much of the world. And a lot of our traditional supplies are going into decline. Certainly the U.S. Uh, petroleum production uh, has been declining for the last 40 years. 
and that's uh, uh, the oil that we are producing now. A, a, a much increased fraction of it is coming from offshore, uh, but it's it's just a geologic, geologic fact of the decline in in uh, the U.S. Uh, petroleum resource. And uh, the North Sea is in decline now. Mexico is in decline. Indonesia was one of the original members of OPEC. Uh, now they're an oil importer because of the declining production rates. So uh, th- there is a, a real issue there. Uh, and although you know, I don't want to say it's that's the situation every single location in the world. It, it's not. There are some promising spots. I mentioned Brazil, Africa, certainly, maybe Saudi Arabia. Who knows what's going on there? Uh, but um, you need a lot of extra production to keep up with the natural decline rates and to keep up with the uh, the growth from the newly industrialized world. What about the role of speculation? A lot of people blame sudden price increases. In this case, it's not so sudden, but it's sustained. But any kind of price increase gets blamed on speculators. And I want you to tie in your answer to that to an issue I think was raised first here on the program by Robert Barrow a couple years ago when he noted that it wasn't just oil that was going up. It was almost every commodity was going up and that although we could tell a supply and demand story about this market or that market, it's a little harder to tell that story. You can always say that, well, they're all positively correlated with income as the nation countries get richer, they're going to demand more of everything, not just oil. But what do you think of the role of speculation in explaining the rise? And do you see any commonality across commodities besides oil? Well, we started off talking about the decade-long trend, and and that was a key thing I was addressing. And, and for for those purposes, certainly above-ground inventories are, are not particularly relevant. I mean, you can add a little to inventory or take a little out, and uh, that's that's not going to make any difference over over ten years, uh, uh, certainly. Now, it's a separate question when you get into the the month-to-month fluctuations or the day-to-day fluctuations. I mean, there's no question on a daily basis, movements in the price of oil are entirely speculation in the sense of, of people making guesses about where the future is going to be, and those those guesses might be right, they might be wrong, and to the extent they're wrong, it's, it's going to show up in inventories. Um, so I, I, I do think there is a, a role of speculation, and in particular, if you look at, at 2009, uh, U.S. inventories, for example, of oil were consistently above their trend throughout this year. And uh, so I, I think there is a case to be made that, that that's one factor in uh, uh, what's going on. And I think it may well be a factor in the increased uh, correlation of the daily price changes uh, uh, one with another. Uh, but but I wouldn't want that fact to uh, confound the longer-run reality uh, which which we were talking about a, a moment ago, and so it's certainly a mistake. It would be a mistake, in my opinion, if you were to say that all of that that price increase from fifty dollars a barrel up was just speculation. Um, I, I, I don't don't think it could be. Now, as far as the increased correlation with with other commodities, um, I, I, I think on the daily basis that's. That that could be part of it. That there there are financial factors that are moving these together, but there are also some some commonalities in that. As I said, China's not just buying oil; they're buying copper, they're buying corn. Uh, you know, <laughs> uh, increasing meat consumption, yep. putting pressure on uh, grain. Uh, grain. Yeah. So there is a, a common aspect uh, of that to uh, all of these questions now. In the case of agricultural production, you'd, you'd think that we should be able to uh, increase that. That that's something that that there is a margin to work along. Whereas, uh, as I was mentioning in the case of oil, uh, uh, there are definite limitations to what you can do, at least in some of the traditional producing areas. But my my uh, thought at the time, and I don't know if it would be borne out by a more careful look at the data, but my thought at the time was. Besides China, we had a ethanol mandate in the United States that put pressure on corn. As more land went into corn, which it would try to do, and it would go into land that wasn't quite as good for corn as the land that was already in corn, uh, that would pull so – that would make the price of corn higher, uh, certainly in the short run, as land was pulled away from other other 
soybeans and other products, that that would raise their prices. So you could tell a story there. But of course, it, it, it's a, it's not just agricultural products, and it's not just oil. It's I think it's it's copper and it's all kinds of things, which of course again are correlated with economic growth. But in the past, we've had immense amounts of economic growth. Uh, last fifty years, they don't tend to get associated with with long term secular uh, price increases. In fact, it goes the other way. Things tend to have gotten cheaper as technologies improved, and it could be this is just a short run phenomenon. But it, it it's an interesting time for that. I don't know. Well, I, I think there is a, a, a change in terms of the character of the growth. Um, and uh, so we went uh, uh, four years there from 03 to 07 with, with 5% real, real uh, GDP growth globally. Um, that's a pretty big deal. And I'm not sure what the historical precedent for that might be. An interesting point, and thought about it. I wonder. Yeah, it'd be an interesting number to look at. Let's close with the related question on oil prices. What evidence do we have? And you know, it's, this will be something I think economic historians and macroeconomists will argue about for at least a decade or three. Um, what evidence do we have of of the role of oil prices in causing the current recession? So, when oil prices were rising at the beginning of this decade long period, we've been talking about. People said, oh, this is going to destroy the economy. The economy kept humming along. We got to 2001. We had a recession. Most people attribute it to the tech boom uh, collapsing, uh, and it was very short. It didn't have a big um, impact on GDP and or employment. It was small by historical standards, and we started humming along again even though the um, those oil prices continued to rise. So what, what do you think the connection is between oil price – Shocks, increases, whatever you want to call it, and uh, G- and the growth rate of the economy. Well, for much of that earlier period that you're talking about, it's it's true that there were increases in oil prices, but they were coming kind of gradually. And so, okay, you you spend a few more cents each month uh, on on gas, but your income is rising at the same time. And uh, I, I don't think people responded to that uh, in, in any significant way. And, and partly that's related to the observation I was making that the expenditure share on energy had fallen dramatically from where it had been in 1980, uh, so that it just, just wasn't as, as big a deal for consumers. Uh, but what you had happen beginning in the, uh, the fall of '07. And running through the summer of '08 was was a uh, a big, dramatic, and, and rather sudden move up, and uh, huge change in the price at the pump for and, gasoline. And that was now uh, that expenditure share became became quite significant. And uh, you know, just in terms of the mechanics, people couldn't go on ignoring uh, that price increase. They had to, they had to cut spending. And so, for example, what you saw in the summer of '08 was uh, uh, maybe a 25 percent drop in uh, uh, purchases of the uh, SUVs and light trucks. And uh, that was at the same time that purchases of the the more fuel efficient imported cars was actually going up. Uh, so it, it seems to me there's a pretty strong case that what was happening to auto demand, for example, at, at that point, had a lot to do with uh, with that kind of sudden move in in energy prices, and that was a pretty big deal for the U.S. Uh, uh, auto sector. Uh, and uh, you know you can point to the lost jobs and the lost uh, income in in the auto sector during that period. I, I think there's no question that that was was at least partly traceable to uh, what was happening to energy prices. Moreover, if you look at consumption spending generally, uh, it was starting to be a real drain on consumer budgets, and the slowdown in overall consumption spending following the energy price increases was quite in line with the historical correlations between consumption spending and energy prices. So I think there's pretty good evidence that the energy price increases were one factor that was certainly hitting some sectors of the economy uh, at the end of 07, first half of 08, in, in a way that was not uh, helpful. Now, of course, at the same time, we had housing and its problems, uh, 
housing was subtracting about 1% from annual real GDP growth during uh, uh, the first year of the recession, uh, but it had been subtracting that a little bit more the year before the recession. So my own view is that uh, the energy price increases were the, the straw that broke the camel's back, uh, that once you had housing and autos and overall consumption spending, consumer sentiment uh, all tanking together, uh, that that was what tipped the scales uh, into a recession. Now, of course, then in the fall of '08, we had the financial crisis with uh, the failure of Lehman and, and all the rest, and, and that put us into an entirely new phase where I, I wouldn't remotely suggest that what happened there was directly caused by uh, by oil prices, but I think we were definitely uh, dealt a tougher hand in the fall of 08, given that we'd already gone through three quarters of a recession. So, so my view is that energy prices were a contributing factor to this most recent recession, just as I believe they were a contributing factor to a number of previous historical recessions. So now um, we can try to come full circle. I can ask you something I, I meant to ask you before when we're talking about the default uh, issue. And that's the transmission mechanism between financial markets and the real side of the economy. Um, there is a view that says the recession we're in is, is totally a result of, of financial uh, issues. Uh, the other view, as you said, is a more complicated picture. And it's hard to argue the latter because it, it started in December of 07. Uh, at least that's the official measure. Uh, so it, it would have to have some real side part to it, it would seem to me. Um, so – the question I meant to ask you before that I didn't would be the consequences for our lives uh, if there were a serious default outside of the inflation. As, as you said, we probably won't default, but if we end up inflating our way out of our debt problems in the United States, other than the fact that inflation is not a healthy thing for decision-making, will there be any inherent real-side implications for, for American life uh, and, and in turn – Try to tie that in. Good luck. Uh, it's a tough question to this observation about Wall Street versus Main Street and the current mess. Yeah, I think it would be very unfortunate for uh, Main Street if if we were to have these problems. And and the nature of the difficulty is if you don't trust your money being lent to the U.S. federal government, how do you trust your money lent to the U.S. bank or the U.S. firm or the U.S. consumer? If the government's having trouble borrowing, uh, you better believe the rest of us will uh, in addition. And I think we saw pretty clearly in the fall of 2008 that when credit dries up, uh, it sends the economy into a, a nosedive. And uh, as we were saying, there are a variety of examples you can look at historically for what we're talking about, a default or currency crisis. But the kind of thing I'm talking about would be a, a joint problem with the currency and the overall banking financial system, uh, which was a very unpleasant experience for the countries that went through it and, and I think would be uh, all the more so for us. On top of which... As I was saying, because the U.S. historically had been such a safe haven, uh, and there's a lot of confusion in figuring out, well, what, what's going to replace that, uh, I, I think there'd be a global aspect of the problem that uh, it's really not something we want to see at all. Well, let's close and, and get you to talk about causation and, and macroeconomics generally. You made a very brief statement. Uh, a, a minute or two ago that, that you think the rise in the price of, of oil is is a cause of other economic downturns historically, not just contributing to the current one. Uh, we've had Ed Lemer on the program who has written a provocative and interesting paper about housing prices being a driver of recessions. Of course, many people believe that monetary policy is sufficient to explain most, if not all, of economic uh, business cycles. Uh, Keynesians are going to look at – I'm not sure what Keynesians look at – loss to confidence, animal spirits. So we have all kinds of competing ideas in economics. What do you think the ability of data are to help us untangle those and uh, how much of it is just um, – uh, I'll just leave it at that. How? What do you think the state of our knowledge is about what causes business cycles and if it's gotten better or worse over time? Well, it's not what we'd like it to be and – 
I think one reason for that may be that that an element of recessions, in in my understanding, is uh, missed expectations. So if you knew a recession was coming in six months, the Federal Reserve would have acted differently. Businesses would have acted differently with their inventories and hiring and investment and so on. And, uh, you know, sort of by definition, for things to go this wrong, something must have been other than than what the majority of uh, actors were were counting on. And uh, furthermore, when you go into the details of what was happening with different sectors and and, uh, uh, different parts of the economy and different recessions, they start to look quite different in terms of the uh, uh, some of the propagation. Uh, and and that to me is is consistent with this idea that it's it's uh, uh, you know really something a little bit different from the last one this time. On the other hand, there is some common element. There's there's some critical mass that once enough sectors are having problems at the same time, it it uh, the system seems to go into reverse. Uh, and uh, so we we can see it once it's happening clearly enough, and and say okay, here we go again. Uh, we seem to be a long way from being able to say, okay, we're about to to have one of these things uh, six months from now. As I say, that that latter failure may be inherent in the nature of the beast, uh, and uh, uh, maybe we shouldn't be expecting to be able to predict recessions any more than we expect to be able to predict stock prices. My guest today has been James Hamilton. James, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you, Russ. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.